You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist and also an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we'll be discussing Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, including who is at risk, test used to diagnose the disease, criteria for treatment, common symptoms, and current treatment options available. I have to say, as a practicing hematologist and oncologist, I have always found it very interesting and exciting in many ways to follow patients with macroglobulin anemia and then to intervene when needed, but actually at least for several, never to have intervened. So with that in mind, we are joined today by Dr. Shana Sorosik, who is a assistant professor at the Harvard Medical School and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Shana, thanks for being with us. Sure. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to be here. And as was mentioned, I work at Dana-Farber in the Waldenstrom Macroglobulinemia Clinic there. So I'm, you know, excited about this topic and very passionate about it. So I'm happy to be talking about this today. Great. Thank you. You know, I'd like to start out by asking first, in a sense, how does Waldenstrom's fit into this spectrum of diseases? Um, On one hand, you've got CLL, you've got lymphoma, you've got myeloma. If you would, give us a briefing on that. And then, in a sense, how does that inform both our understanding of the disease and even if you could sort of look forward a couple words in turn, how does it inform our treatment options? Yeah, Waldenstrom is an interesting disease because I feel like it's an overlap or kind of in the spectrum in the middle of lymphoma and multiple myeloma. Because it is technically considered a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, it has some features that are more characteristic of lymphomas. Generally, you have a clear underlying lymphocytic clone that's present, sometimes with a CD5 positivity like you might see in CLL but often without that, but definitely B-cell features. But also these patients often have their lymphocytes having plasma cell features or even a distinct plasma cell clone that's present. So there is a little bit of overlap there between lymphoma and myeloma. And I think it really is institution dependent where this disease fits in, in terms of treatment. I have many colleagues that are lymphoma experts that treat Waldenstrom's and at some hospitals, the myeloma experts are treating Waldenstrom's. So it really can go in either direction, which is also interesting because then our treatments actually then overlap with both of those diseases. So we'll use some therapies like rituximab, a very common lymphoma therapy, mm-hmm. and then we use some proteasome inhibitors very commonly used in the treatment of myeloma. So we have a good mixture of treatments pulled from both the lymphoma and the myeloma world. Let me ask you a little bit more. I think you alluded to it even just a couple minutes ago, but with clonality, most of the time, is it a clone or are there several clones? Is there as much heterogeneity in this disease as we sometimes see in both heme and in solid tumor malignancies? Yeah, good question. So generally speaking, I would say that we typically see 
a distinct clone, one clone in the bone marrow that's a clone that has both lymphocyte and plasma cell features. So for example, CD19, CD20 positivity, and often CD38 positivity as well with light chain restriction of one, either kappa or lambda. That's what we typically see, although sometimes I would say I don't know an exact number, but I would say a couple of cases a month where I will have patients that seem to have two underlying lymphocytic clones. So maybe some of the cells will have some mild CD5 positivity and another clone has CD5 negativity. So there is, you know, a distinct portion of these patients that can have what looks like two different clones. But I think we often think that these are just related to evolution of the clone over time. Now, maybe simplistic thinking, but I'll go out on a limb and ask anyways. Some lymphoid diseases, at least we talk about or talked about, that the problem is with apoptosis. The cells live too long and don't have apoptosis. Other diseases we talk about, proliferation is the bigger problem. So a two-part question, but tell us more about Waldenstrom sort of in, in that setting. And then also, where are these cells, we talk about cells guys sort of getting stuck in their maturation and differentiation. So again, what's happening in Waldenstrom? Where are they getting stuck on the B cell spectrum? So we've actually had this conversation in our group about whether or not we feel like this is more of a proliferation issue, or like you said, an apoptotic issue. And I think in general, this is a very indolent disease. And I think it's mostly a disease where you have an underlying clone that's just sticking around. You know, the cells are not undergoing apoptosis. And so they're just more of a persistent clone. It doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be that these cells have a lot of proliferation. As you mentioned, you sometimes have patients that don't need treatment ever. And that's true. I think a lot of patients will have an underlying clone that just really isn't proliferating and is kind of stuck in a you know, in a phase where it's not really expanding or it's expanding at such a slow rate. So I think in general, it's more of an issue of dysregulation with apoptosis rather than significant yeah. proliferation. I wanted to ask you in terms of risk, who is at risk? What are some of the genetic factors? And it's hard, obviously, to generalize about this whole large group of patients. But in terms of the natural history of Waldenstrom's, what do you see? Are there patterns that you've seen that will help us as we see patients with Waldenstrom's? Yes. So Waldenstrom's, as we know, is quite rare. Generally, maybe about three in a million patients will develop Waldenstrom's, about 1,500 new cases per year in the U.S. And the risk of that is slightly higher in men compared to women. So women have a risk of maybe one to two in a million compared to men, which is a little higher. The risk is higher in patients of European descent compared to other ethnicities. Also, additionally, Patients who have a family history have a higher risk of developing Waldenstrom. Sometimes we have patients that have a clear family history. So let's say their mother had Waldenstrom's, their maternal grandfather had Waldenstrom's, and it's very clear that those patients are at high risk for Waldenstrom's. But other times it's just a less clear path of inheritance. Maybe those patients have someone in the family who had lymphoma or someone who had multiple myeloma, where we know that they're at a slightly increased risk, although not a high enough risk that we develop screening protocols or watch those patients more closely. We just know with some family members with hematologic malignancy, you know, patients can have higher risk of developing Waldenstrom's. 
I treated a man whose identical twin had Waldron's drums, and surely he had an IgM gammopathy, and later he developed Waldron's drums. Any idea what the uh, or theories, what the predisposition is? Is there a genetic marker for the disease? So I think that there's a lot of ongoing research looking at this, and some patients might have, I think, some inherited mutations, but I think in in general we don't exactly know what predisposes patients, whether they have a genetic mutation or potentially if there was something, you know, an exposure to multiple members in the family, that they had an environmental exposure that increased their risk or potentially was a a second hit that led to their Waldenstrom's or there are quite a bit of data about immune dysregulation in Waldenstrom's. So patients with Waldenstrom's have a higher risk of having autoimmune issues and you know, there are some information about potentially, was it some immune issue, let's say a, an initial infection that led to some immune dysregulation and development of Waldenstrom. So I think there are a lot of theories, but it's not completely clear in all cases what the underlying risk is, whether environmental, genetic, immune stimulation, and it could be a combination of all of those things. When you see a new patient who either has the diagnosis or, or is on the verge of getting that diagnosis, what is their work of comprise of? What testing do you do, you know, to confirm the diagnosis? So generally speaking, most of our patients have had some of these tests done before they see us initially, but we typically have baseline laboratory values, and that includes the immunoglobulins. That's often how Waldenstrom's is picked up. So you want to know what is the patient's IgM level. And then to determine if that elevation and IgM is related to a clone, we have the serum immunofixation and serum protein electrophoresis to see, is it a clone of IgM? We always get baseline blood counts to see if a patient has anemia or other cytopenias that could be related to their disease. Comprehensive metabolic panel, it's less common, but liver or kidney involvement can occur. So you want to check those organs. Serum viscosity can be helpful in patients that are at risk for symptomatic hyperviscosity, although sometimes the IgM, we often use the IgM in our practice to help determine that rather than the serum viscosity. There are some predictive models that use beta-2 microglobulin and albumin to see in an asymptomatic patient how long until they might require therapy. So those are helpful. And then in some patients, cryoglobulins and cold agglutinins might explain some of their symptoms, like if they have cold sensitivity or um, an unusual rash or skin ulcers that aren't healing. So those are also part of what we generally check from a laboratory perspective on patients if we're concerned about Waldenstrom's. So by the way, I would love to hear more about that because, you know, in terms of a sort of less common presentations, tell us a little bit about the rash, about the other sort of in your experience, other symptoms or laboratory findings that sort of with you as a Waldenstrom's doctor would have raised a red flag and to be honest, may not have for the generalist. Yeah, so often the most common thing that makes me think of those is when I ask the patient about their medical history and they tell me, oh, I have Raynaud's that developed a couple of years ago. And then my ears perk up because often in those patients, they could have an associated autoimmune disorder that leads to their Raynaud's, but often they have an underlying cold agglutinin or positive cryoglobulin so that if they're exposed to cold, they develop symptoms where they can have pain or color change in their fingertips is commonly where we see it. Even some patients, when Mm -hmm. they reach into the refrigerator, they might have pain in their fingers, even just from that short cold exposure. 
And then sometimes patients will say that they've noticed that their ears or their nose turn purple or become painful in the cold. So if I hear those things, you know, I think of cold agglutinin or cryoglobulins. And cryoglobulins also can present with some other characteristic features like a lacy rash that you would see in a cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, like some patients might see, like in hepatitis C, you'll see a similar type of rash, or mm-hmm. occasionally patients present with unhealing um, leg wounds that have been there for months or years, another feature of cryoglobulin. Sometimes the neuropathy that patients have can be related to cryoglobulins as well, rather than the typical anti-mag neuropathy we think of. So those are some of the things that I watch out for on exam or ask patients about to see if that will clue me into whether or not they have cryoglobulins or cold agglutinins. In terms of making the decision, I have to say I'm eager to talk about treatment. So sort of moving in that direction, you know, obviously some patients don't need to be treated. It's a, you know, benign finding or not benign, but it's a finding that's not changing. You're seeing a you know selected population of patients who are presenting to a very high level tertiary center, but give us a sense what percentage of patients don't need to be treated, and along those lines as well, how do you make the decision that someone needs treatment? Yeah, as you mentioned, we probably see more patients that do require treatment at our institution because many of them will seek out additional opinions when it nears that time where they need therapy. But in general, the data tell us that that there's a small percentage of patients, maybe about 20 or 30 percent, depending on the data that you see, that don't require treatment even a decade after diagnosis. And it's kind of nice to look at that graph and see that the number is increasing until about a decade where it kind of plateaus off and that percentage of people are still there without any requirement for therapy. And it's possible, I think we don't have even longer term data that some patients will never require therapy. Some might need Mm -hmm. it, you know, at 15 years or 20 years, but a lot of patients, a majority of them will need therapy. It's about a third of patients up to about a third that will need treatment within the first two years of diagnosis. And the most common reason that we see why patients need therapy is symptomatic anemia. The guidelines say a cutoff of a hemoglobin less than or equal to 10, but that really varies by patient. I see some patients that have a hemoglobin of 10 and a half and are really symptomatic. And I have some Mm. patients that have been in the nines for years and the hemoglobin is stable in the nines. They have no symptoms. They feel great. And we don't necessarily treat. So the guidelines are there to help us, but you know, we really have to go based on the patient symptoms Mm. and as well. But hemoglobin is the main marker for treatment. In terms of other things, the IgM, I think that one gets a little bit tricky sometimes because technically as patients have an IgM greater than 3000, they do increase their risk of symptomatic hyperviscosity. I think often an IgM greater than 3000 also makes people very nervous, not just providers, but patients as well. And so sometimes people do want to pull the trigger on treatment just because IgM has reached 3,000 or 4,000, but just that number itself is not a reason for a patient requiring treatment. If the patient develops symptomatic hyperviscosity, then certainly they require therapy. But often we have many patients at our center with IgMs of 4,000, 5,000, even 6,000 that we can just watch and they have no symptoms. They feel great. And for many years, we follow them just like that. So I think that's a good learning point in terms of IgM that there's not a specific threshold that says you have to treat because the number has reached that point. So two other diseases, and you and I have been talking about them, but CLL and myeloma, I think you know, many of us, again, who are generalists in community hematology and oncology see many of those patients. And there's 
been a lot of advances and a lot of excitement about you know oral agents and multi-drug therapy in myeloma, for example. Now I have to say I'm excited to hear about it. I've kept up some with Waldenstrom, but obviously don't see that many patients with it. So what is happening in Waldenstrom's? Because I know there's been a lot. Yeah, I think that it's an exciting time for Waldenstrom's. And despite the fact that it's a rare disease, luckily we have a lot of research ongoing in this field. We have the traditional therapies, chemoimmunotherapies like bendamustine with rituximab, or regimens that include cyclophosphamide with rituximab and steroids. Those are the most common chemoimmunotherapies. And then the other go-to regimen that you mentioned is the oral BTK inhibitors, so ibrutinib or zanibrutinib. I would say those are the top two regimens we use here in the U.S. And it was actually really interesting, and it is interesting to talk with our international collaborators such as at the recent international workshop on Waldenstrom's. There are different practices depending on what part of the world that you're in. Some places in Europe tend to use chemoimmunotherapy more readily. In the U.S., we tend to lean on the BTK inhibitors maybe a little bit more readily. And in some countries, they only have access to just a calibrutinib or just anibrutinib or just a brutinib. So it's actually pretty fascinating that depending on where you are in the world, the first-line treatment option might vary. But Another option after those first two I mentioned, we have proteasome inhibitors like bortezomib, which can be used and have good response rates in Waldenstrom's. The warning label that comes with that drug for us is just the risk of neuropathy. So we worry about that quite a bit since a lot of our patients yep. already have neuropathy. Um, right, right. Yeah, so that's what we worry about. But I think in terms of exciting therapies, there are a lot of new therapies that are up and coming that are in clinical trials. So venetoclax was just added to the guidelines. So as we talked about apoptosis earlier, there you know, was a study by Dr. Castillo that showed that venetoclax and relapsed Waldenstrom's is a great therapy that can be used. There are trials with combination oral therapies. There are upcoming CAR T-cell trials with a recent small patient series published by Dr. Palomba that showed some success with CAR T-cells. So I think that's coming up in trial. So there are a lot of exciting things I think that are up and coming that are going to prove to be successful and effective therapies in Waldenstrom's in the future. In a community setting, if patients are, let's say, are not referred to a tertiary center, but but what would you consider, you know, for a patient somewhat average of, you know, somewhat older person who does not have that many comorbidities, but what would you consider sort of first-line therapy and what would you consider second-line therapy? And and I, I'm just in, interested in exploring your thinking on that and why you'd make those recommendations. Good question. So I think something we haven't touched on yet that does go into my decision-making when we have the data available is CXCR4 status. So I think we all know about mid-88 mutations are found in approximately 95% of patients with Waldenstrom. So that's the classic mutation. But the other mutation is CXCR4 mutations, which can be found in about a third of patients with Waldenstrom's. That testing is a little bit more difficult, I find, to even have access to in some places. So we don't always have that information available. But if it's possible, let's say on next generation sequencing, to send a next generation sequencing panel on a patient that includes CXCR4, I think that's great information to have because it tells us a little bit about how the patients present. So when patients have CXCR4 mutations, they're at higher risk for hyperviscosity, for acquired von Willebrand syndrome, for increase in the 
amount of malignant cells in the bone marrow, but it also tells us about how they might respond to some therapies like BTK inhibitors. So if patients have a CXCR4 mutation, their response rates are going to be a little bit lower with BTK inhibitors. The amount of time they respond to the BTK inhibitors is going to be lower. So I do factor that into my decision-making for patients. And often for patients with a CXCR4 mutation, I might tend to lean away from BTK inhibitors and more towards the chemoimmunotherapies or maybe bortezomib-based therapy, just so that we can try to get a deeper response that lasts longer. If I don't have that information or if the patient has CXCR4 negative status, then, then I think you know BTK inhibitors are we commonly use in that setting because of the high response rates, the excellent tolerability of those drugs. And I think we're also able to avoid chemotherapy in those settings and maybe have a slightly lower risk of, especially in the setting of the COVID pandemic with rituximab increasing mm-hmm. risk of COVID complications. I think BTK inhibitors might be a little bit better in that setting as well. Yeah. For patients who are treated with a chemoimmunotherapy protocol, let's say bendamustine uh, rituxan, or if let's say they get cytoxin rituxan, what's your experience in terms of the typical depth of response and duration of response? So bendamustine and rituximab actually is, I would say, the therapy that we currently have available that has the highest rates of complete response. So the deepest response that we can get in Waldenstrom's, again, that's not a very high rate of that, but it is the the treatment that has the most complete responses. And I find that beneficial in some cases, like in patients who have neuropathy, where we're really trying to get a deep IgM response, that something like that might be helpful. I generally tell patients that when they get treated with bendamustine rituximab to expect their disease to have good control for potentially five to six years, somewhere around that, I think with this cyclophosphamide-based regimens, maybe slightly shorter than that, depending on who you talk to. That was debated a little bit at the recent international meeting if it, you know, maybe is a year shorter than bendamustine rituximab mm-hmm. or not. But I do tell patients that, you know, it'll be a matter of years, generally speaking, that they'll have good disease control before requiring another therapy. In terms of monitoring, is it primarily uh, protein electrophoresis? Do these patients, um, either at the time of diagnosis or later on, need a bone marrow biopsy or repeated biopsies? Generally, when our patients come back, a lot of our patients are on a every three-month monitoring. You know, this has to be individualized per each patient, but a lot of our patients are on every three-month monitoring. And when they come in, we essentially go through symptoms, you know, asking, do they have any of the symptoms that might require therapy? We examine them to see, do they have large lymph nodes or a large spleen we have to be concerned about or any other unusual findings like the ulcers I mentioned with cryoglobulins or things like that. And then we do labs. And our labs typically include complete blood counts, a chemistry panel to look at kidney function and liver function, and then immunoglobulins. I don't think necessarily that you need to check the immunofixation or protein electrophoresis every time because we generally know most patients don't get a complete response. So the monoclonal protein doesn't usually go away in most patients. So just looking at the IgM number itself can help us know the trajectory of the disease. You know, is the disease worsening or progressing? We can see that just based on the IgM. So saving a little bit of testing, I think, can be helpful. So that's most of the time what we do. There are some special cases, obviously, but I think those three labs are key, CBC, Comprehensive Metabolic Panel, and the immunoglobulins in terms of the bone marrow. Generally, we don't repeat bone marrows after a patient completes treatment. 
because if they've had a clinical response and they're really doing well and we can see good disease control from their blood tests, you don't necessarily need to repeat it. The times we might is if a patient has, let's say, progression of anemia, but it doesn't line up with the progression of their IgM and we wonder, is there some other problem developing? Or if a patient is considering a new therapy and we want to try to assess something like the CXCR4 status to see if they might respond in a specific way to a new treatment or if they're going on a clinical trial. So those might be the cases, but typically we don't have to repeat bone mirrors very frequently in our patients. I wanted to ask you about some other therapies that are used in heme malignancies, but stem cell transplant, either autologous or allogeneic. I wanted to ask you also about, because it's, you know, used so commonly, especially in solid tumors, but checkpoint inhibitors. What's the status of those other therapies? So stem cell or bone marrow transplant, we don't use very frequently in Wald's and Stroms. We rarely, maybe every couple of years or even more than that, send a patient to have a bone marrow transplant. The exception to that, I will say, is AL amyloidosis. So patients with Waldenstrom's associated amyloid, we do still use transplant quite frequently. But aside from that, just in patients with Waldenstrom's, we don't tend to use transplant, either allogeneic or autologous transplant. And the reason is that neither one of those seem to be curative for Waldenstrom's, especially the autotransplant, which would be the go-to type of transplant. Those auto stem cell transplants have significant toxicity. And without a cure, we would rather use some of the better tolerated, less toxic therapies that we have and avoid the toxicity of an autologous transplant. Allo transplant, I guess, could be curative in some cases, but has very high toxicity. So I think not a reasonable option in the vast majority of cases because we have such well-tolerated and very effective therapies to use otherwise. And in terms of checkpoint inhibitors, so far, those are not something that we're using in Waldenstrom's. There was a study previously that was stopped early because of toxicity. Particularly what we've seen and what was reported in cases previously is that patients can develop actually some immune-related issues. Specifically, we've seen in a few patients hemolytic anemias, and that has been, we have a few patients, let's say, that also have lung cancer or who have other malignancies and they've been given the checkpoint inhibitors and unfortunately mm-hmm. developed pretty, I've seen a couple of cases of florid hemolysis when they've been giving those in the setting of Waldenstrom's. So because of the study that was closed early from toxicity and because of these cases we've seen, um, we generally do try to avoid checkpoint inhibitors in these patients. All right, so I need to ask you about the Bing-Neal syndrome. Uh, what is it, how is it diagnosed and how is it treated? Um, So Bing-Neal syndrome is involvement of the central nervous system in some way by the malignant cells in Waldenstrom's. So it occurs in about 1% of Waldenstrom's patients, and it can present in a variety of ways. So it might be so obvious as that patients having seizures, or it might be less obvious. So patients who have some headaches or maybe transient small episodes of aphasia or confusion or patients might have limb weakness. So it can present in a variety of ways. So if I have patients that develop some unexplained neurologic symptoms, then I'll pursue a workup for Bing-Neal syndrome. And the workup will include a full MRI, including the brain and all of the spine, because Bing-Neal can be a solid mass that presents somewhere within the brain, or it can be presenting on MRI with just epidural enhancement somewhere along the spinal cord. So we include that full imaging brain and spine. And then the other thing patients get is a lumbar puncture. 
And typically when we analyze the CSF in patients that we're concerned about being neo, we'll send the typical studies from CSF and including the cell counts. We send flow cytometry to look for a clone of lymphocytes or plasma cells. We'll send cytology to analyze for malignant cells. And we typically will send mid-88 and IGH testing to look for a B-cell clone because sometimes those can be more sensitive than just the cytology or flow cytometry. And so those are the ways that we will use, because not to diagnose patients, not everyone is going to have an abnormal MRI and they might just have abnormal CSF. So I do think that both the lumbar puncture and the MRI imaging is an important part of the workup. And how, how do you treat those patients if you do make the diagnosis? So luckily, the BTK inhibitors cross the blood-brain barrier. The largest amount of data we have is with ibrutinib. So patients can be treated with ibrutinib and have excellent clinical responses. There are some data for using high-dose, 520 milligrams of ibrutinib, but many patients are treated with the standard dosing. And the important thing is the clinical response of Bignil can be somewhat delayed. So even if the IgM is improving, you might not see that the clinical features improve for a matter of weeks or months. We typically don't repeat lumbar punctures in patients. If patients are having clinical improvement, then we don't necessarily need to repeat the lumbar puncture because if they're clinically improving, then you know seeing a few malignant cells left over is not going to change our management of those patients. So I want to take advantage of your expertise and also the recent international workshop meeting. But in terms of, in a sense, pie in the sky, kind of the things that you're excited about going forward in regards to therapy. What were some of those things and the things that, again, have you feeling excited about your field? So I think some of the exciting things. So there was a great debate to watch at the meeting about treating patients earlier or later with Waldenstrom's. Our current you know, criteria and guidelines tell us that we wait until a patient has some sequelae of the disease, the anemia, the symptomatic neuropathy, hyperviscosity before we treat. But there is a lot of research ongoing about trying to come up with well-tolerated therapies that could potentially be curative in the early stages. I think that's our ultimate goal is to find a therapy like that where we can treat patients early before they have any symptoms and just, you know, eliminate the problem altogether uh, without waiting right, until right. patients happen. That'd be great. So I would love that. And there are many things coming mm-hmm. up. I think CAR T cells are being tried earlier and, you know, outside of Waldenstrom's, but let's say in other situations like myeloma or smoldering myeloma or MGUS, I think CAR T cells will be tried in that setting and potentially could be, you know, something that could be used There are newer therapies we haven't mentioned yet, like bispecific T-cell engagers, which I think are going to be a really interesting therapy. So I think there are a lot of new things coming up, which potentially could fill that role in the future. But that would be the goal, ultimately, is to just, you know, find something that's curative that we could use early on and just eliminate the whole process of watch and wait for something to happen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And finally, what are some good resources for patients, families, caregivers with Waldenstrom's? So often I I refer patients to the IWMF, so the International Waldenstrom Microglobulinemia Foundation. That's an amazing resource for patients. They have data available for patients in many different formats, which I think is key. So they have articles or written information, newsletters for patients. They have online forums. They have support groups previously face-to-face, but now often virtual. They help support oral presentations. So there are 
data available in you know multiple different formats. So I think the IWMF is key. Leukemia Lymphoma Society obviously has excellent, well-prepared and up-to-date information as well about Waldenstrom. So I think these are you know key places where patients can get information. Unfortunately, a lot of our patients will just Google things and and unfortunately the information they get initially, I'm not saying unfortunately that they Google, but unfortunately that the information that initially comes up can be quite misleading. Many of our patients, I feel bad, they come in the first time and they're incredibly scared because they read something on Google about, you know, the first thing that came up in their search that their life expectancy is, you know, maybe four or five years. And I think things like that can be really scary for patients. So having these excellent resources is really key for the patients. First thing I want to do is say this has been a wonderful discussion, and I want to thank Dr. Shana Sorosik, who is a assistant professor at the Harvard Medical School and at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Shana, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, and we're always available to help as we can to be a resource for providers, but also for patients if needed. Yeah, your group has really been terrific and your colleagues at uh, Dana-Farber in terms of when needed to really give the gift of your expertise. So I thank you for that too. I want to thank all of you for listening to this very informative, interesting, and exciting episode on Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. For this program and for a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, uh, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org ce. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. We look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org ce. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.